Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 140, recorded on October 29th, 2019. Today we will talk about Volocopter's air taxi ambition, startup bootcamp, and the future of the public exchange, whether there's a place for sauna parties at tech events, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Carlos Espinal, the managing partner at Seedcamp. I am your host, Andre Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is life? Hi, Andre. So good to see you again after a long week away from the podcast. It, it, it certainly felt much longer than just uh, just a week off. Uh, it's so nice to be back. Well, I wasn't taking a week off. I was running behind the scenes at Startup Week Dublin, which was amazing and one of my favorite things to do that I get to do every year. Really enjoyed that. Lots of wonderful community spirit and the atmosphere was awesome. But I need maybe I need a vacation afterwards because it is quite exhausting. Yeah, I can imagine. But before we start recording, you said that you're doing another conference tomorrow anyway. Yes, I will be on stage tomorrow for two sessions at Startup Summit in Edinburgh, uh, which is a great event that brings together the entire Scottish tech community. And I'm really excited to talk about some kind of really big hitting topics there about the US and Silicon Valley compared to Europe and also about raising early funding. It sounds great. If there will be any videos or whatever, just to, uh, maybe you could share it uh, next time. I would really love to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Definitely. Perfect. Now, before we get into the stories and everything that we have prepared for you, uh, a quick uh, word about uh, the report, a new report that uh, TechU and Stripe are going to release. It is called Blooming Late, and uh, the report is analyzing late-stage technology funding in Europe. So if you have been with TechU one way or the other for a while, you can remember that this is not the first uh, collaboration between TechU and Stripe. Uh, we have already released least two other reports. First one was called Seed the Future in 2018, and the second was called Life is Growth in 2019. So they were looking respectively at early stage investment and growth stage investment in Europe. And this last one is obviously the focused on the late stage. So keep your eyes peeled. Uh, we are going to release the report very soon, and uh, we would love to uh, hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, but before we get into the stories this week, um, we have a lot of really great things to share with you. But I wanted to follow up on a story we covered in the podcast in September of last year. So way back in podcast 87. Um, there I covered the story of Vinted, which is the Lithuanian startup uh, for clothes uh, secondhand clothes shopping that rose to really incredible heights, but then floundered pretty significantly and was then finding its feet again with a new 50 million euro investment. Well, I just wanted to share, we've been following this story and the company seems to be going from strength to strength. And last week it was announced that they've acquired Chick-Fi, which is a fashion marketplace from Spain. Um, I'm not sure if I said that um, properly, but the amount that they bought Chick-Fi um, has not been disclosed. But the media reporting on it, it seems that there's really big competition for this secondhand fashion marketplace. And Vinted here was the lucky bit bidder. 
Um, why I wanted to bring this up again, and it's because I think it's worth revisiting the story of Vinted because uh, there's a link in the show notes of a really good rundown that was done by TechCrunch last year, which does a good job of showcasing that the startup journey, especially a successful one, is really not a linear one and that you really can come back um, from a, a significant fall and, and still continue on. Um, and I just wanted to, to share that as we got started. Yeah, this is great. I do remember this story. I can't believe it was so long ago. 87, that sounds like ages ago. It's number 140 today. We've been at it for a while, haven't we? Yeah, we have. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I will certainly uh, revisit the story myself and uh, uh, read uh, up on uh, what's been going on with Vinted. But now let us get to the stories of the past week. And uh, over the last few episodes, we have mostly talked about, I think, uh, the ecosystems and uh, policy and government and uh, that kind of thing. So today I wanted to talk about flying cars. This is a great topic. So last week we learned uh, that a German startup uh, called Volocopter raised an undisclosed amount from Micron Ventures as part of its Series C round. And the first closing of that round happened uh, back in September. And it was at 50 million euros and uh, the valuation of the company at that point was somewhere between 200 and 250 million euros. Among the backers of Volocopter, which is interesting, are two major car manufacturers, uh, German Daimler and uh, Chinese Geely. And uh, Geely uh, also, for example, owns uh, Volvo and Lotus and uh, some uh, other uh, assets in the industry. So what is it that Volocopter actually is doing that makes it such a sought-after investment opportunity? Uh, in short, it wants to build a flying car taxi service within the next two to three years. Here, however, I have to say that Volocopter set exactly the same time frame back in 2017. So I guess it still may take a little bit more time than that. But I would expect to see at least uh, something uh, flying around uh, by 2025 or something. Now, let's talk about Volocopter itself a little bit. The startup has been around since 2011, and since then it has built and tested three generations of its electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. The current fourth generation, it's called Velocity, and it can seat two people with light luggage, so no big suitcases and stuff like that. It has a range of some 30 kilometers, and the top speed of the vehicle is about 110 kilometers per hour. It also looks like a drone, like a very big drone with 18 propellers uh, on it, and uh, it can uh, obviously take off and land uh, vertically. It looks uh, really interesting. And uh, there are a bunch of videos that I will link in the show notes uh, from the first public test flight that Velocity took uh, over Marina Bay in Singapore uh, just last week as well. And during this two-minute flight, uh, the vehicle was manned by an actual pilot, but the company plans to have its copters operated remotely in the future and then eventually have them flying autonomously. The reasoning here is quite obvious, of course, because if there is a pilot in the cockpit, then only one person can be carried uh, by the taxi, and that's in most, in most cases not enough. In addition to the plans to launch in Singapore, uh, Geely and Volocopter will be working on a joint venture to bring Volocopter and its uh, urban air mobility concept to China. 
Next, I wanted to talk about uh, the business model uh, of uh, Volocopter's uh, envisioned taxi service. And here I just wanted to quote uh, TechCrunch's Ingrid London, uh, who wrote about this uh, particular question. The quote begins, Details on how Volocopter's service would operate are still, pardon the expression, up in the air. But Volocopter's CFO, Rene Grimans, said that while Volocopter would own the aircraft, it would likely partner with local operators to help run the service. Similar the initial running of this autonomous craft would almost certainly involve quote-unquote drivers <clears throat> and the company says that operating uh, these vehicles is significantly less difficult than piloting other conventional aircraft and the drivers will be partially assisting and monitoring the autonomous operation the quote ends so there are quite a few issues, of course, that could interfere with Volocopter's grand plans. And first of all, it's competition uh, from players of all sizes, starting from Uber, which is also working on its own uh, flying uh, car operation. And then like, the likes of Lilium, which is also a German startup working in the same direction, then Ehang, Kitty Hawk, and so on and so forth. And another problem would be the regulation. As far as I understand, there is still little done on that front, but Volocopter is actively working with governments to create a way for air taxis to share airspace with airplanes and drones and uh, whatever other uh, airspace users there are. However, there is one more thing that I was thinking about, and uh, that's how noisy these taxis are going to be. And when I see those 18 propellers, what I just imagine is the sound of, I don't know, two to four big drones flying above me. And I don't like the idea at all, to be honest, because if this is indeed the future of transportation, we are going probably face uh, a huge noise pollution problem. And the only solution I have been able to think about so far is just that we only have, I don't know, landing pads on the roofs of taller buildings and then not allow these vehicles to fly lower than, say, 50 meters at all, because otherwise, I mean, it's going to be deafening. On the other hand, I do have to say, it seems like the sci-fi future is finally within reach. We have all grown up, uh, I guess, uh, with the uh, sci-fi books featuring uh, flying cars. And I would love to sit in that cockpit uh, once. It's just fascinating for me. Even it, it can be noisy, it can be whatever. I really want to want to fly this thing. Natalie, so how excited are you about this? You know, and it's hard not to be excited about the future of, of flying cars. And, and you mentioned, like, you'd love to sit in that cockpit, but... How likely is it for someone like you or I to actually be utilizing this technology in the future? It seems in some ways, I think it's really exciting. Some of the products coming out, Lilium's one I've been following for a long time, but the problem that it solves is for a certain consumer at a certain level of the market that does isn't going to be a, a mass mass production. I don't tend to use taxis that much anyway. Um, more likely using public transportation or just walking around. Um, so I don't necessarily see this as being something that I would be able to really take advantage of anytime um, in in the future. I would love to see this technology being utilized for maybe um, a different sort of purpose, such as for. Um, rescue, air rescue of um, emergency, um, uh, something like that, that actually has the ability to kind of solve the more fundamental problems um, rather than kind of just getting some people from A to B. It just seems like it's solving a, such a smaller problem than it could be. Yeah, I, I get it. Uh, I mean, it's certainly going to start as a gimmick. 
uh, I'm sure, and mostly it will be uh, taken as a taxi by people who just want to, uh, like myself, uh, sit in a flying car. But uh, what I wrote, what I read uh, in the, from the interviews of uh, Greenman's, the CFO, and I think one of the founders as well, is that they are going to bring the prices down, like uh, over the next ten years. So it will start pretty expensive, of course. So it will not be something affordable but within 10 years as the technology evolves and uh, the market uh, uh, adoption uh, grows they actually expect it to cost about as much as the taxes uh, cost uh, today yeah so I'll, i'll be waiting kind of a long time probably before i get the chance to ride in it but um, i think it's wonderful that they are building this technology and i'm sure we'll see a number of, of really exciting developments coming out of it Um, but it, it'll be yeah. a little bit of time before the, the mass consumer can look at this as a, a valid option, I imagine. Well, I'm an optimist. I, I, I'm an optimist. I want to believe that it will be available in our lifetime. <laughs> okay, Natalie, what was, uh, what was your story for today? It's something a bit more serious and a bit less uh, sci-fi, is it? <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, but earlier this month, we learned that Startup Bootcamp would be publicly listing its next Amsterdam-based fintech and cybersecurity accelerator on the public market. So this listing will allow Startup Bootcamp to receive investment for the first time from individuals and not just professional investors. So what what is this all about? Well, Startup Bootcamp is one of the world's largest networks of corporate accelerator programs. They have a pretty big European footprint as they're headquartered in London and run over 20 accelerator programs all over the world. And with this announcement, they are going to become the first publicly listed accelerator program anywhere. And the FinTech and Cybersecurity program plans to accelerate 30 startups in the next three years. So Whomever they choose for their program, public investors for the first time have the opportunity to come along for the ride. But why this is an interesting story is, well, first, the fact that Accelerator is doing a public offering, uh, but also where they're doing it. Startup Bootcamp is listing on the N Exchange, which is one example of a growing number of public exchanges that are designed to be alternatives for startups to raise capital and also to increase the amount of capital that is available to specific communities. So an exchange, and the name hints at it, aims to be a next-generation stock exchange that can be used by companies as a white-label trading platform. And speaking to Silicon Canals, Marlene Everett, the CEO of an exchange, said, I'll quote here, For many companies, a regular stock listing is too complex and also expensive. We believe that the time has come for a more modern form of capital market transactions, efficient, real-time, 24-7, transparent, and supported by compliance procedures that assure maximum security, end quote. An exchange is based in Amsterdam, so the same place where the accelerator program is running, and received its license to operate as a regulated market last year. But the company and the idea behind an exchange has been around for some time. The first beginnings of the firm started in 2015. Today, there are nine companies listed, including Startup Bootcamp. And some startups you might recognize are Fastned, which is the European network for electric vehicle charging, and Good for All, which is a sustainable luxury fashion company. 
But N-Exchange is not the only new exchange that is attempting to shake up the public markets. In Scotland, there is a new exchange being built here called Project Heather, which is designed as a stock exchange for companies that are working in the social impact space. One of the main drivers behind this project is to provide more capital for local companies and to provide an alternative to raising VC investment, which happens to be not particularly popular here. Elsewhere, we're seeing the growth in companies utilizing private exchanges to raise capital equity. For example, there's Funderbeam, which was founded in Estonia, and Neufund, which is based in Berlin, which each offer companies alternative ways to raise funding through a global pool of investors. The rise of these new private public exchanges and alternative markets aims to democratize and improve access to capital for startups. And we're seeing startups utilize these resources more and more. Over the summer, Funderbeam raised a $4.5 million Series A and has scaled successfully from the Baltics to the UK and now spreading throughout Asia from a base in Singapore. But why should we care about the growth of these private exchanges and what's so compelling about this? But when we look at the overall funding landscape for tech and startups across the continent, first, having this alternative sources of investment importantly gives companies another option and creates a more diversified funding landscape. It also stands out because of the more public, more traditional public exchange markets in Europe is telling quite a different story. Critics and agitators, such as the London Stock Exchange's James Clark, frequently complain that startups wait too long to go public, or more frequently, never go public at all. And when you look at IPO launches across the continent, they are falling significantly in recent years. Public offerings are not nearly as attractive as they used to be. And last week, Fortune magazine declared an IPO winter in Europe, with only very few listings over the course of this year. The largest and most notable one of Q3 was TeamViewer, which listed in Germany in September, where they raised $2.2 billion. But more than one analyst suggests that not a single company will go public on the Spanish exchange for all of 2019. Analysts put it down to political unrest in Spain and the upcoming election, But elsewhere in Europe, the slow in IPOs has been put down to the Brexit crisis, as well as a suggested lack of late-stage capital finance. But also because startups have more options today, which brings us back to the N-Exchange and the other new model exchanges, which were designed to be more agile and receptive to the needs of modern companies. With startup boot camps listing, it should encourage all of us to take a closer look and pay attention to this increasingly important development in the funding landscape. Hey, this is interesting, but I still, I'm still not sure I understand how is this an exchange thing different from equity crowdfunding? It is similar to equity crowdfunding, but it is different in that it allows you to trade the shares, whereas oftentimes right. equity crowdfunding, you're just holding on to it until a certain amount of time. So you can trade okay. shares at any time that you want. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, this, is, this sounds interesting, and uh, this uh, startup bootcamp story is uh, sort of a perfect segue into our interview of the week, and this is a conversation that I recorded with uh, Carlos Espinal, managing partner at uh, Seedcamp, and we talked back at uh, Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen, and one of the questions that I actually asked was, why is Seedcamp 
not an accelerator anymore because we all know that it used to be the first accelerator uh, in Europe, uh, more or less. And right now you cannot find the word accelerator on its web page at all. So answer to this question and uh, a lot more in this interview. Let's us listen together and we will be back in a bit uh, for events and recommendations. Hello, this is Andre Degler reporting today for Tech.eu from uh, Copenhagen uh, Tech Barbecue uh, Conference. And today I am catching up with uh, Carlos Espinal of uh, Seedcamp. Uh, hey, Carlos, thanks a lot for taking time to talk. Thanks, Andre. So I suppose I shouldn't ask you what Seedcamp is, since most of the uh, listeners know it. But just in case, like one minute uh, brief explanation, what, what is it? So our, the vision for Seedcamp has always been to, to back the earliest stage companies that have global ambition with super, super ambitious founders. And, you know, we've been doing that now for 12 years. We've had, you know, 350 plus companies that we've backed over those years. And the vision is still the same. It's just that, you know, how we do it has evolved. Right. And uh, since, uh, since which year have you been doing this? 2007. 2007. Uh, that's the founding year of Sitcamp and when you also joined, right? So I was part of a fund called Dowdy Hansen that invested mm -hmm. into Seedcamp back in the day. Uh, Reshma started it uh, along with Saul Klein and I joined full time in 2010, um, although I was involved earlier. But uh, Seedcamp originally started in a much smaller format. And, uh, and I think, you know, it was amazing that it took off with so small a group and team. Yeah. Right. And your own background before that was? So, yeah, my background before Seedcamp. So, you know, I started off my career as, a, as an engineer. I worked at um, a startup uh, that was, was acquired um, and then eventually sort of fell apart. Um, it was, it was um, Baltimore Technologies. It was in, in the cybersecurity space. And then I ended up working at the SIAC, which is a division of the New York Stock Exchange that did the technology for them. So I really was exposed to technology, really loved it. Um, and at the time, I met a friend who was in venture capital, and, and he shared with me how you know, he gets to spend time with engineers working on really awesome products and mm -hmm. founders. And, and I was like, that sounds like a lot of fun. So um, I did some studies to, to transition away from engineering into, into business and understand the fundamentals of that. Uh, worked with a, a venture fund in Boston called Vimac Ventures as part of my my studies, mm -hmm. and um, and then I came to to Europe, um, and uh, and I and I've loved it ever since. Okay, that's that's really interesting. And you have never regretted leaving engineering for business. There's always that. There's always a part of you that wants to build things, and I think now I've channeled that into building Seed Camp. But yeah, every every person who's built product in the past always loves the idea of taking any problem that you think and, 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 and going out and building it. I think I'm horribly out of date with uh, coding framework. So I think it would take me twice as long to build something now. But, but yeah, there's a little part of me that, w that loves it. And I think I, I, I sort of bring that to my interactions with founders. So speaking of building a seed camp, so a lot of stuff have been built, has been built on the foundation uh, laid down in 2007. And uh, what I notice is that when you think about the history of accelerators in Europe, usually everybody says that Seedcamp is the first European-born accelerator. Now I can't see the word accelerator on the website anymore. You don't really call yourselves that. Why, why is that and when did it happen and why? Yeah, so that's a very, very good question. And, and there's some history lesson in there, unfortunately, but, but it's also actually quite interesting to deep into. Um, I think there's a couple of words that are usually tied together, incubator and accelerator. 
And I think that the foundation of those words is that there's a, a level of help that's required that is an excess of independence from a founder. It's like an independent founder would not necessarily require that. Uh, but early days in, in, um, in the ecosystem, there was quite a bit of people that were new to entrepreneurship and this ideas of incubators and accelerators were born. And I think when, when Seedcamp started, there was, there was a, a community that was formed around helping founders. And, and that community was to help bring lessons learned in entrepreneurship to those founders to help them accelerate their learning. So hence it made sense. But I think if you look over the last decade, there's been a lot of democratization of entrepreneurship knowledge. You know, I, I was trying to explain this to, to a friend of mine the other day. And I was saying like, if you look at the X games today, the tricks that people are doing today in the X games are by default, like the hardest, hardest, hardest things that were going on in the X games in the first version. And it's because in every field, um, standards go up year on year. And in every field, those standards become normal, even in, in running, you know, running certain uh, milestones today mm -hmm. that were impossible a hundred years ago were not possible. And I think you see that in entrepreneurship. And so from when the ecosystem was first starting, what is considered best practices has now become quite normal. And therefore that was one thing that effectively meant that that was not necessary anymore. And the other thing was that there was a lot of new uh, founders that were serial entrepreneurs and a lot of people that um, became angel investors after they succeeded. And that mm -hmm. also added depth to the community. So I think the, the role that those types of formats played were no longer as important anymore and they became um, unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was that there was a need for a community and a platform, which we can talk about in a bit, but that became more important than sort of the strict function of an accelerator and incubator. And so we, about five years ago, we decided that that was not um, something that our customer, in this case, founders were really interested in. And so that's when we decided to move away from it. So are you implying that, uh the accelerators uh, that exist uh, today are not really necessary on the market? I think it depends. First of all, it's a very hard question to answer because the world is big and, and not everyone is at the same level of parity. You know? So the European ecosystem has evolved in a way that, let's say, the South American ecosystem is, is evolving. You know, and it will take mm -hmm. time to. So first of all, you, your question is a global question. You know, you first of all have to like regionalize it. Right. So in some geographies, in some sectors, yeah, I don't think it's as necessary. Like the, the role of, of the traditional role. And by the way, the word accelerator will continue to be used. I mean, Y Combinator is probably the most successful and they inter interchangeably use the word accelerator fund, whatever. And they're perfectly, perfectly executing extremely well. But the nature of what they do is very different today than it was maybe 10 years ago. So I think there's two parts to that question. One of them is, where are you regionalizing it? Mm -hmm. And two, what is the definition that has changed? And so like, yeah, sometimes we get called an accelerator today. And the only reason why sometimes I make the distinction is because um, I want to avoid any one founder feeling like they're not getting what they want to get. Right. So yeah, I mean, in terms of geography, most of my questions uh, would be about uh, Europe and European landscapes, since uh, we are, that's what we are writing about. But yeah, I mean, still, I think there are still more and more accelerators appearing in Europe, uh, right? and the, 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 the number is not really going down. So why do you think would that be? So, you know, back 
back to the ser- the purpose it serves. So one of the good things that I've seen in incubators and accelerators right now, and by the way, when I when I answer, I answer for the purposes of who we're looking for, right? right. We're we're generalist fund that looks for uh, founders with a lot of experience in the sector that they're approaching, or with a, an edge that makes them stand out in a hyper competitive environment. Right. Not everybody's going after that kind of, of founder. So, for example, there's a lot of really great incubators and accelerators coming out of universities, helping the intellectual property that's being developed in those environments get commercialized. Mm-hmm. So it's a perfectly good and valid context for that. So I don't want to vilify the ideas. It's just as it pertained to us and our needs, it was not something that we we felt was um, something we was was really delivering the value to the to the founders that we were engaged okay. with. This is okay. This is clear. And uh, for you, uh, how did the transition go from the accelerator model to like normal stage VC model? Yeah. So one of the interesting things that we're seeing right now, generally speaking, is this idea that um, venture capital isn't just about the money. It's now about many more things than that. You know, you see Andreessen Horowitz, you see a lot of other funds delivering service capital. I call it service capital. I don't know if anybody else calls it that, but um it's just that the money isn't enough, right? Like um, there is relationships that you're shortcutting, which mm-hmm. is critical. But then there is um, understanding what what are the typical issues and pitfalls, and also creating a community. One of the biggest value adds that we've received feedback from our founders is the ability to get feedback about an issue that they're going through from a founder that just went through it. So in that case, it's not let's say a celebrity founder. 10 years down the road, giving advice. It's literally somebody who's maybe only six months down the road who just went through that same experience and can share it to them. And so I think we're, we're coming to an age now where there's enough communities being formed, enough investments have been formed across mm-hmm. several funds where that becomes really the value proposition to, to founders is, is you're joining a community of people who are like-minded, who have the same level of ambition and who have dealt with a lot of problems that you're going to go through so that it isn't such a, a lonely experience and you have resources to tap into to solve those problems. Right. And uh, if we can just uh, jump to another part, which uh, I uh, said I will ask about before we started recording. So how do, you actually, how do you actually do this? How do you facilitate this knowledge sharing, if you will? Yeah, so part, part of what Seedcamp is, is um, as I mentioned before, it's a community. Uh, and one of the things that you have to do with a community is obviously introduce yourself to this community. And, and the way that we help founders um, day one is in understanding who is in that community, how they can add value to that community, how that community can add value to them. And we break that out across multiple events throughout the year. We, we have events that are social, events that are uh, specific in function. So mm-hmm. we've had this year, for example, a product summit. Uh, this Friday, we're going to be having a marketing summit. And that's where all the founders are, or, or the heads of marketing of those companies get together and discuss issues that they're going through. So the way that we, we support founders evolves year on year, and we're getting constant feedback about what kinds of, what are the issues? It's like one issue that we're seeing more and more is the fight for talent. Right. So we're, we're, we're thinking through how to best deliver, for lack of a better word, a product that serves our community around the issue of talent. You know, how do you find the right people? How do you build an organization? How do you scale? How do you attract and keep the best people? And then how do you prevent um, any of these competitive dynamics that can sometimes happen when you open up an international office and then all of a sudden you need to hire there or you might lose people because of, of the move? So all those kinds of questions are questions that we're helping bring out from our community. And we do that through 
first of all, building those relationships between founders so they can open up and share their thoughts. So an outside and the, okay, first, uh, how many people are you talking about for an event like marketing summit or product summit? So how many people are coming to this? So, I mean, they, they sell out. So I, I guess one question is how many people could potentially show right. up versus how many do, but I mean, it's on, on average, we try to keep it intimate. So it's about anywhere between 40 to 60 people, right? Um, because any, anything more than that becomes conference, right? And then True. in that sort of space, you can have some level of, of intimacy between people. And outside of the events, do you have any sort of online platform or whatever for, uh, for the people to uh, talk? Yeah, we do. Um, you know, actually, we have multiple different channels that we have. Um, I mean, the technologies that we use aren't a secret. Um, I mean, many other um, funds and, and, and programs have different technology platforms. Ours, we use a combination of uh, messaging mm -hmm. and, um, and a platform called Mobilize. Mm -hmm. um, and it, the, the, the interesting thing isn't so much the tech platform, it's, it's how to build a relationship um, on those platforms. Uh, I'll give you an example. We use um, on, on WhatsApp, for example, we, we will create like groups. And in those groups, you'll have a combination of people to help support those founders. And the people will be swapped in and swapped out of those groups as necessary. So, you know, right. that's a constant thing across our teams. I actually heard there are a bunch of uh, interesting uh, WhatsApp groups uh, in London in general for, uh, for entrepreneurs. Is that the case? Yeah. And actually, I mean, I would love to get a full index. So if you, if you want to go and embark on a, a journey, I, country, <laughs> I think it, I, some titles would be probably be quite funny. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Let's move on. Uh, and then uh, going back to uh, some history of uh, Seedcam and some things that you did before. So a couple of years ago, you sold one of your funds to Draper Esprit, to a big investment company. And it was a really interesting thing. Was this the first time it was done by a uh, seed stage fund? Yeah. So technically, it was a secondary uh, of our LPs and um, uh, Draper becoming our sole LP for mm -hmm. funds one and two. Um, and yeah, as far as I know in Europe, definitely the first of, of its kind. But I think what was really interesting about it is that we saw a win-win for Draper and for our LPs. Um, you know, when we, when we talked about it, um, it was around uh, the time that, you know, we'd been invested in some of these companies mm -hmm. had already exceeded quite a bit of time. And, and so for our investors, it was a great outcome. And, and Draper, you know, was able to, to work with some of our founders and, and continues to do so. How about the founders and the startups? Did you seek their approval before the deal, how it all worked? Yeah, so we obviously want to make sure that everyone is aware of it um, and, and everyone was happy with it. And keep in mind that it's not, it's not the, from a technical point of view, we're still the relationship. Right. So I think this is where sometimes you, you kind of have to look at how things are, are, are done. But in this case, Draper is in effect our LP in the way that we had other LPs. Mm -hmm. So we continue, we continue to have the key relationship with the founder. Okay, so, so you're still the first point of contact and Correct. the founder still uh, come back to you and they're still part of the community. I mean, right. as you know, LPs make up a fund and then the, the fund managers have the relationship with the, with the founders. So it, it's in that same structure. Right. Is this something you were looking or you're considering, say, for uh, uh, the funds uh, three and four? Yeah, I mean, I think every fund would definitely benefit from considering this if they find the right partner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not so much a question as to whether you'd want to do it. It's a question is when's the right time. And it's a question is who's the right partner. Because as long as it's the right partner, you, you can have a win-win situation where 
they benefit and then obviously you can continue to to have a, a good relationship going forward right and then speaking of different things that you did uh, that were not uh, something uh, i would expect to see from a stage fund you had this uh crowdfunding campaign that was not entirely usual but still with sitters so can you explain what that was and uh, how can a early an early stage vc use crowdfunding for their for their goals yeah so it, it's probably small correction in the sense that right. the word crowdfunding seems to imply that you know it's kind of like on the tube saying you want to invest in this thing and you know that wasn't what it was we um we've been very lucky in that a lot of our founders have been very successful and um they wanted to invest in seed camp. So Cedars basically helped bring um, a way for our founders to invest in seed camp. So it was, it was slightly different. It wasn't mm -hmm. open to the, the public in the way that a traditional crowdfund It's just that the brand Cedars, of course, brings the implication that right. it is, but no Cedars was very um, uh, critical in helping us uh, put that together. And um, yeah, very excited to have our founders backing us. It's an, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting sort of idea of uh, having it this way. Was that the first time it was done? Same was it? Right I think so. But yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've heard, before, heard about it before. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there's plenty of, of founders out there who, um, who have backed the funds that backed them for sure. I know, I know that. Um, but yeah, probably this is the first of its kind. The other thing that we did in case you, you missed it, we also published our fundraising deck online publicly. Right. Yeah, so you can go to SlideShare at SeedCamp and, and see it uh, and, and kind of critique it. I know that a lot of times uh, people, <laughs> people um, feel like, um, you know, founders have to share their decks and whatnot. So we figured we'd do the same and then right. people can see kind of what we did. So who is it for? Is it for your founders? Most of yeah, I think it's for the community, really, right. to understand um, kind of what we do, but also as a, as a way of looking at um, how funds have to fundraise as well and and how we have to represent ourselves and i think it serves mul multiple purposes in that sense yeah this is great so okay let's move to more overarching let's say questions so what do you think about the dynamics of the european tech in general and uh, first of all what do we need more of to build a healthy ecosystem, let's say, because I mean, there are so many different reports and they say, okay, we lack money. We, we lack money on early stage. We lack money on late stage. We lack entrepreneurs. We lack education. We lack something else. What is it? I've been very fortunate to be part of the history of the ev evolution of the European ecosystem. And so that gives me perspective over time. And I've seen so many things flourish. I've seen uh, local government support flourish. I've seen the mindset of, of founders beyond parity globally. I've seen um, the, the evolution of the pre-seed and seed and series A funds and money coming in. And, and so a lot of that stuff we could microanalyze, you know, like mm -hmm. what, what is the mindset of a founder in this country versus that country? Or what's the maturity of the ecosystem in this side or that side? And I think all those things are nuanced now, but they're all generally super, super positive vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, even five years ago, mm -hmm. eight years ago. And so now I think the biggest delta right now is around mergers and acquisitions mm -hmm. um, in having more M&A in Europe so that there is a pathway for founders and, and um, funds and, and capital sources to be able to complete the cycle. Right. right. And you see a lot of that in the U.S. Obviously, there's quite a bit of an acquisitive uh, temperament in, in, in corporations in the U.S. And so... You know, just seeing more of that would be great. I think that would complete the full cycle. So how do we do that? 
What do you need to do to, to, to see more of that? Well, I've been actually trying to tackle this this problem and trying to figure out what could be done. And I think it's a combination of things. And there's, there's a couple of other things we could talk about. Like, mm. for example, pension money being unlocked for funds. But I mean, like there's enough money that uh, that's not the, the biggest thing. That's why I, I bring up M&A. But if you look at, if you look at corporations that, that buy companies, I mean, there's certain attributes that, that they, they have. Obviously, I think there's a cultural uh, disposition towards buying versus making. You know, and I've had some interesting conversations with some companies where they were building something internally that already existed in an external startup. And there was a, and I, I would ask a question saying like, well, why don't you just buy that company? And it was like, well, I think we can build it better. And it wasn't in those words specifically, but, but until that there's a shift there and then there's an understanding on how to acquire and how to incorporate that team, because there is a process of incorporating new teams into existing companies without, you know, killing it. Right. So until that whole thing is sort of uh, fixed in in a way and and catalyzed, I think that it's going to paralyze it from being the case. Now, what other things could happen? Well, I mean, this is now in the land of fantasies and and what I would love. But you know, I, I think it would be great if, for example, just like there was the SEIS tax relief for angels, mm. there was a similar thing for you know any corporations who were looking to launch something and as part of an acquisition, you know, there was some sort of tax relief for that acquisition, you know, like, I don't know what the structure for it would be, but you know, you could see where it would be a function of like an R and D tax. So instead of spending, getting tax relief on R and D as a corporation, you would get tax relief on this acquisition, which would shortcut the R and D. And I think that would also trigger, you know, more interest in, in M and A as a way of completing that cycle. And you would just have an innovation, uh, full circle. Is this conversation actually happening anywhere, but between the, the two of us right now? I, I would hope so. Um, but I think that, you know, like without taking, uh, you know, too much of a bite out of, of, of this conversation, it's like, there's, there's so many pressing issues at the moment. I think uh, macroeconomically and, and things, I think that there's, there's a time to re re-engage those conversations, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, we need to have some, some clarity right. on, on many policies in the next 12 months. And then I think as part of that, we might be able to start reconsidering what, what areas benefit from tax relief to incentivize growth. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the other things I've been thinking about in the U.S., you see a lot of people moving into the country from far away uh, to start their business there and so on. I don't see, I can't say I see as much in Europe. So do you actually see more people moving to Europe from South America, North America, Asia, uh, to, to start business. And do you think it's a good thing or not? And does it, do we have to, do we need to have more of that? Yeah. So I wish I had statistics for you to, to share, like in terms of who moves where, I mean, so anything I'm going to say is anecdotal, anecdotal at best, but when I see, um, the UK startup scene, mm -hmm. I definitely see quite a bit of people coming from all over the place to start a company in the UK especially right. from all over Europe, uh, less so from, let's say, South America or less so from Asia. Um, during a time when I spent in Hong Kong, I saw a lot of European founders going to Asia and starting from Hong Kong. And I know that's changing, but I think what we're seeing is that uh, capital mobility as well as people mobility being something that is definitely very different today than it was 10 years ago. Now, what are those patterns? I think that there are some industries where that might be the case. Like if you're a fintech entrepreneur and you want to start something fintech wise, I think definitely, you know, London and Europe is a hub 
So I wouldn't doubt it if there was a lot more migration in that sense. But if you're looking at things like, you know, maybe gaming, it's Finland mm-hmm. and you, you'd, you'd go to, to, to that area. But then if you're looking at other areas like, um, um, you know, mobility, which I know that, you, you know, you, you guys are spoken about before in your previous episodes, you know, like, is that, is that more Asia or is that more the U S you know? Um, so I think it varies by segment. Right. And I think it, it varies, um, by the, the countries and, and sort of the attitude towards having and welcoming people. Right. So we are right now in the Copenhagen tech barbecue and you have a speaker badge. So what is it you're, uh, you're speaking about? So we're, there's two subjects today. Um, one, one was around, um, hyperscaling, um, and had the chance and, and uh, privilege to, <laughs> To, to chat and hear David Helgeson's story, uh, the founder of Unity, right? You know that's it's so inspiring to see what what he's built there. Um, and we were joined by uh, uh, the the team from SoftBank and, and Northzone on the panel, and it's really interesting to see how we have this perception of hyperscaling as being just about like exponential growth uh, in terms of of revenue and, and and valuation, but there's a huge people element to it. So one of the things that we discussed was how do you scale an organization from within? How do you build um, a way for a founder to go from, let's say, operator to manager and then build teams that can scale along with them to attract the best talent, retain the best talent in a hyper-competitive talent landscape mm-hmm. now? You know, there's so many people fighting for the same resources. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about that and we, we talked a little bit about um, uh, scaling with a, uh, a, a negative unit economics model versus mm-hmm. a positive unit economics model. So it was, it was a really interesting chat. And, and clearly the, um, the, you know, PJ from, from North zone, you know, he's, he's got some amazing stories, you know, the story of Spotify and, and so David and Sakshi, you know, so it was great to, to hear their, their perspectives. And then the one that we have a little later is around the role that boards uh, play in, in startups, mm-hmm. especially early stage startups. And, you know, I, I have a couple of opinions there as, as the panel has yet to happen. I, I think I'm still forming uh, how I want to share those opinions. But generally speaking, you know, I think I could argue both ways on the pros and cons <laughs> of boards um, because, you know, boards like the word board is, is a it's a really a representation of like a relationship with somebody, you know, like what relationship do these group of people have with each other? And I think where boards can go wrong is when that relationship is is imbued with certain attributes of authoritarianism or a certain audits say, but if it's a, if a trust-based relationship or it's a, um, a peer-based relationship, I think it can take certain other attributes. So I think that's what the conversation is going to be about. Right. So I hope we will have the recordings after the conference. I will definitely uh, love to hear it. Thank you so much, Carlos. That's what it for my questions and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of the time at the conference. Thank you, Andrew. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of TechEU, episode number 140. Uh, we have just listened to the great conversation with Carlos Espinal. Uh, thanks a lot uh, to him uh, for uh, having this interview with me. I think we, we have learned a bunch of interesting stuff now. And uh, let us see what we can expect to happen in the next uh, few weeks or months. Natalie, 
Yeah, for for the events, uh, Taiki U actually has something um, really special to announce that we will all be at Slush this year. That was up in the air for a little while, but you will be able to catch all of us, the entire team, at Slush in Helsinki at the end of November, where we will be recording a live podcast and a ton of interviews. So if you are heading along to Slush, be sure um, to say hello and to connect with all of us there. And we're really looking forward to that. Absolutely. So Natalie, anything else? Uh, any, any other events that you're going to? Um, I'm trying to keep my event schedule very lean this year. Um, I say that every year, but it never ends up happening. Um, I do hope to be heading uh, to Berlin in the middle of November for the Marketplace Conference. All TechEU listeners have a, uh, a special discount code you can find in the show notes of the podcast if you would like to join. Um, that is November 19th in Berlin, which is a, a really exciting new event. Other than that, uh, we will be skipping Web Summit this year, unfortunately, but uh, I know so many people are going. So I do hope if you're heading to Web Summit, you have a great time. Uh, but that is it for me um, besides the event next month. Um, right. Yeah, I think I will also at the end of the month, I will also be uh, in Riga at the uh, 5G Tech Territory event. So the, if you are going to be there and if you'd like to have a coffee and meet me, do let me know. And uh, as for Web Summit, I think Robin should be around maybe uh, at least one day uh, because the report that uh, I mentioned earlier will be presented there. Other than that... Let us know if you are around Brussels or Groningen or Edinburgh to meet us in person. Now, uh, let us move on to recommendation part. Uh, this, this is going to be interesting. So, <clears throat> I, will, I will start. Uh, we are bringing back another topic that I think we already have discussed, but uh, quite some time ago. And it is about sauna parties. So, sauna parties that often take place at startup events in the Nordics, and particularly in Finland, these are getting another portion of criticism. So, you might remember that a few months ago, Sifted ran an opinion piece that argued that the sauna tradition makes it harder for women to participate in the ecosystem. And last week, another similar piece came out on the BBC Work Life, so I wanted to discuss it real quick. It is also a timely thing to talk about because we are less than a month away from slush, and uh, the that conference uh, is uh, sort of famous, among other things, for its sauna village, where participants can have some sweaty times for themselves. And I won't go through all the arguments uh, for and against saunas uh, in a work-related environment. Uh, if you're interested, do go and read the BBC piece, I think. Uh, I will link to it in the show notes. It grasps the uh, whole picture pretty well. What I wanted to highlight, though, is the last quote in the piece uh, where a Stockholm-based female tech consultant says that she's totally fine with the sauna and she feels much safer there than, for example, at a loud party with karaoke. And that's exactly what I was thinking, actually, reading the piece. Uh, like, the question would be, should those of us who don't like dancing, for example, and who don't like incredibly loud music, should we also feel excluded because that's the kind of parties that 99% of tech conferences normally have? I mean, it's a it's a, like a rhetoric question. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. But all in all, my take here would be that it's good to have different networking opportunities at events. And generally, I don't see any big reason why Sona shouldn't be one of them. So, Natalie, bring your American uh, perspective on this. <laughs> Tell us why it's wrong. Yeah, well, this is a tough one because 
And and I think what the BBC piece and the piece that SIF did somewhat kind of do some discredit to uh, in suggesting that it makes it harder, especially for women to participate in the ecosystem, especially when we have so many cases where that actually is not the impression. It's important to remember that sauna culture is such a big part of Finnish cultural life and that it is a really testament to uh, a lot of business being done there. It also is somewhat difficult, especially for an American person where basically a sauna, doing business in the sauna is probably the most foreign thing that I can imagine. Uh, I also see Americans going to sauna with shoes on and really not being able, like feeling quite out, out of place a lot of the time. Um, and so that's why I think it's hard, especially when you're trying to endeavor to make your startup community as inclusive and as diverse as possible. Um, it's a wonderful thing that you can welcome um, your participants at your tech event with this very important tradition, but also recognizing that it is not um, for everyone. I think one way of being able to kind of toe the line here is by having a very strict code of conduct for the sauna. Um, here's this, what to do and what not to do in the sauna. I think one thing that makes people feel uncomfortable is especially if you're coming from a different culture, you don't necessarily know how to act. What do I wear in the sauna? How do I behave? What is on and off limits in the sauna? I think maybe putting out some more ground rules and not taking those for granted, basically, um, will make everyone feel more comfortable, especially laying down some line, like maybe no sales pitches in the sauna, no VCs and startups pitching in the sauna, I think that really would go a lot, a lot of way to help people understand what is what's okay. Because of course, if you grow up in Finland or Estonia, sauna is something that is really intrinsically linked with your cultural life. You've grown up with it all the time. You know exactly what you're doing in there. Uh, but I was at an event in Estonia over the summer, and we had people from all over the world there, and there definitely was a sauna session, um, and it was quite interesting. Um, how it went down, how people felt okay. Some were very comfortable in there. Some were not, were quite uncomfortable in there. So I think code of conduct, helping people understand what's okay, what's not okay before the event um, would go a long way for making people feel comfortable. And as you mentioned, it's not the only place to network. I know for a fact, I'm not going into Sauna Village, but I know also that I will be making lots of valuable connections. Okay, this um, sounds much more reasonable than I expected. <laughs> I'm not going in the sauna village. If people are trying to get me in there, they always are. I will always say no. I don't feel comfortable there. I grew up in a very prudish culture. But for other people, they're quite comfortable to be in there. Um, I wouldn't want to tell someone that their cultural tradition, um, just because I'm not comfortable with it, that they can't go ahead with it. And I think that's really the, the perspective that we need to hear. But also helping invite people in and helping them know what's okay, that's a wonderful way of sharing that tradition with their participants, as well as making it more inclusive. Okay, so we won't be able to record uh, uh, the next episode of the podcast in a sauna, apparently, but uh, maybe I will record some interviews there. 
Only if that's within the code of conduct, Andre. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. If we have any listeners uh, from uh, the organization committee of Slush, do try to put down some code of uh, some ground rules. I think this uh, uh, makes a lot of sense. But also, we need to all understand that Sona Village, for example, at Slush and uh, Sona's at Tech Events General, it does not have to be for about business, right? It's just a place also to just go and relax, like as a side event that does not necessarily oblige you to go there and treat everybody around you as someone you can pitch your startup to or do whatever else you come to do at the conference. It's just a place to uh, go and have maybe time for yourself as well. <clears throat> But yeah, I would love to I would love to see really uh, good, a really good set of uh, rules uh for uh, for the sauna and uh, if you need any input people at slash do let us know we will be very happy to work on that with you now natalie you have something much more interesting i think <laughs> this week for recommendations i i kind of started listening to it already <laughs> good good and because usually andre when you hear the word cryptocurrency you are running out of the room before the the sentence is finished But here's something that I think everyone, and especially you, will like. Um, and so it's a podcast that I wanted to recommend, and it's entitled The Missing Crypto Queen. And it's done by BBC technology writer Jamie Bartlett. And it's just in time for Halloween because it's a very spooky story behind OneCoin, which is one of the most nefarious but also profitable schemes to quote a Uh, to launch a quote cryptocurrency there's a really a lot of ten tension behind that if it's a cryptocurrency at all um but after incredible fanfare with the launch of the one coin things went quite sour and the story is told with incredible care impeccable research and the right amount of intrigue it also includes some very good music And this podcast uh, is quite a surprise. It has everything, um, including a cryptocurrency beauty pageant, um, which I had no idea you could put those two things together. But there's missing persons, deceit, deception. The FBI is involved. And the story is ongoing. Since they've been um, launching the episodes in the course of their reporting, new developments have arose, um, which have continued to develop and add to. Uh, so if you've been affected by OneCoin or you know anything about it, you can get in touch with them. Um, they are continuing the podcast. Right now, seven episodes are available for binging or for the long walks or whatever you, wherever you like to listen. Um, and we've talked about on the show how true crime podcasts are amongst the most popular out there. And so this fits in with that and also tells a story about OneCoin, which is one of the biggest scams that I think despite its magnitude, hasn't got the attention that it deserves. So I'd encourage you to have a listen. And it's something that anyone can really enjoy if you're in tech or not in tech. Um, there's a very entertaining uh, episode where um, Jamie Bartlett, the writer, talk, tries to explain uh, blockchain to his mom. Um, it's wonderful. <laughs> so um, I do encourage you all to have a listen of that. Yeah, this is certainly going to be the very first cryptocurrency-related podcast I will listen to. Also comes at the right time because I just got around to reading uh, uh, the Bad Blood book. So I think uh, uh, this will go very well uh, with it. Definitely. There's a lot of similarities there um, between uh, the, the woman behind this uh, one coin and Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, that was the topic of that book. 
All right. So if you also are going to listen to this podcast, let us know uh, what you think. Now, as for our own uh, podcast and today's episode, this is it. This is time to wrap it up. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. And if you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. So great to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andre. Wonderful that we're back with the podcast. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.